Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. William Nordhaus is a joint Nobel Prize winner for economics for his work on climate change. But is he helping the climate change cause or is he hindering it? Today, Steve explains why he thinks Nordhaus's work is simply reassuring us that taking action against climate change will be more costly to the economy than living with the consequences. Now, that is a mighty gamble. So is Nordhaus doing a lot more harm than good? And what are the standout arguments from Nordhaus that are clearly not right? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. And by the way, there's also a a video available of this conversation. But I have to warn you, Steve was just back from the gym. He's wearing a singlet, singlet and you might not be ready for quite such excitement. So in which case, just stick with the audio version of this podcast. Welcome along. Now, look, I remember on this podcast when we uh, first spoke about William Nordhaus becoming the joint winner of the 2018 Nobel Prize in Economics for his work on economic modelling of climate change. And at the time, I remember I suggested to you that, you know, maybe this is a good thing because at least it, it put the idea of climate change having an influence on the economy onto the agenda. But how wrong was I on that? Because his DICE model, the Dynamic Integrated Model of Climate and the Economy, well, the DICE model is decidedly dicey, isn't it? We've uh, we've since discovered. Uh, and it seems that he, like many economists, seems to be saying that, you know, the idea of limiting temperature rises to one and a half degrees is just too costly. The, uh, the, the, the cost outweighs the damages would actually be better doing nothing at all which which is very convenient isn't it you know but i mean so how how can he say that when we all know that the impact of climate change untacked uh, unchecked is going to be catastrophic we can't just let it go well he's actually made up his own numbers to make it look like it's not mm. catastrophic and this is the thing that sort of surprised me because when that i mean i remember when that first happened and i actually had the same thing at least they're giving an award to somebody who's worked on climate change i'd forgotten yeah. that he his first real sorting into the area was to attack the limits to growth um, and mm. and the predecessor report done by jay forrester is one of the world's great and truly great intellects um and Forrester had designed what he called system dynamics. And one of the first applications he made of that outside applying it to manufacturing plants uh, was to consider the world as an overall system where there's population growth, which is possible because there's food growth, which is possible because we uh, are using petroleum-based um, fertilizers to grow more food, uh, which is possible because of the amount of energy, et cetera, et cetera. And he did all the feedbacks. Yeah. And uh, came out with a with his own set of predictions slightly before a second, a third model. He built what he called World One and didn't publish it. World Two was what he spoke about, and Nordhaus criticised. And then World Three became the basis of limits to growth. And Nordhaus was completely and absolutely disparaging of this. Now, knowing this technology myself, um, and knowing having read the same book. Uh, when when he wrote those disparaging remarks back in 1972, 73, I knew he was wrong in most of the claims he made. 
free cities there was not but not based on empirical data now in fact yeah. what the authors had done quite painstakingly before they wrote the book was to build a set of indices for population pollution land use uh, available reserves of resources compressing all those things into a set of seven or thereabouts numbers, which they then had a time series for going back to 1900. Yeah. And what they did, first of all, was to make sure the model backcast from 1970, I think is when they began the model, from 1970 back to 1900 and roughly fitted the data they had. Yeah. And then they ran it forward. Yeah, which is convenient, isn't it? So, so they, they had... That's his idea of empirical analysis, in other words... No, it, no, no, no. That's the, what's the limits to growth, did, right. and that was valid. Right. Okay. What? What? So Nordhaus didn't even know that happened. I mean, he, the guy's capacity to read something and, and not see what's on black and white paper mm. is quite remarkable. We'll talk about that later. But he claimed there was not a one. That's garbage. There was empirical data behind the world's world uh, world two model behind world three. The mistake that the uh, authors of World Limits to Growth made was not publishing that actual data in the book itself. Right. But they did refer to it. It was available. It was in previous studies. But it was a general read, so, wasn't it? I mean, the, the Club of Because okay. this all came out of the Club of Rome. <clears throat> Limits to Growth was sort of like the yeah. accessible, buy it in a, an airport uh, bookshop, general read for everybody because they wanted to get it out to as many people as possible. So understandably, they didn't. Yeah, and that, yeah, they, they cut down some of the technicality. Mm. That's correct. Uh, and so when, when Nordhaus's first paper disparaged uh, the Limits to Growth and, and, and uh, Forrester's work, Forrester wrote a reply, which wasn't published in an economic journal, pointing out that all the tricks that, that Nordhaus did with the model was wrong, were wrong mm. back in 1972. And that's, that's the background story. From that point on, Nordhaus specialised, so-called, in climate change, economics of climate change. Yeah. And uh, so I then, when, when I had finally made my own contribution in the area by writing the work on the role of energy in production, I thought it was time for me to actually read that literature. And I'm sorry I left it so long because having disparaged Forrester for, you know, not using empirical data, which was a fallacy, Nordhaus made up his own bloody numbers. That's the only way you can mm. describe it. Made up numbers that fitted his preconception that climate change had no impact. Well, I mean, or, or very minor impact. And and but his his numbers. I mm. mean, just to the layperson, his numbers are becoming more evidently nonsense, aren't they? So he reckoned, based on two thousand and five mm. prices, the cost of climate change, uh, if we did nothing, it was going to be twenty two point six trillion dollars. But if we try and restrict the temperature rise to one point five degrees, then uh, then it's going to cost. Thirty-seven trillion dollars. So we we save money by doing nothing. As I say, very very convenient. Uh, so basically, he's saying environmental damage at one and a half degrees is about ten trillion. The cost of abatement is going to be twenty-seven trillion. But that. I mean, trillions are big numbers, or they were, weren't they, until this year? Now we've had COVID nineteen, and mm. uh, as as a planet, we're spending more than that this year, just trying to uh, go against something that we just didn't see coming. Uh, and mm, so mm, th those numbers actually seem quite small now. So you, people are going to look and go, hang on a second, if COVID-19 has cost this much, you're saying uh, you're saying climate change is going to cost less? I mean, there's going to be a big question yeah, mark over yeah. that. And then that's what's going to start happening because the claims themselves, um, I, the, the one that I, I, I most like, a claims from his 2018 American Economic Journal uh, paper, where he said that a three-degree increase in temperature will reduce GDP by 2% yeah. compared to what it would have been in the complete absence of climate change. Now, putting those in terms of the trillions, American economy is about $20 trillion. Let's say the whole globe 
is 100 trillion. He's saying, in effect, the costs of, three, of, a, of a three degree increase are about two trillion. Yeah. Um, now, it's not the trillion, it's the percentage of GDP that really lets you get their handle on this. So, a three degree increase in temperature will only cause a 2% fall in GDP. Yeah. Which is which is so trivial. It's not even rounding. Well, wait, so so and the OECD is saying probably ten percent at best. The well, fall, the, the fall this year. Yeah, from, scientists are saying probably human extinction. Yeah, no, I'm saying, but this okay. year the OECD <clears throat> estimates are probably we're seeing the GDP fall by by at least ten percent as a result of COVID nineteen. Yeah. So COVID so COVID, so COVID nineteen is. Yeah. Um, it's five oh, it's times worse yeah, yeah, than yeah. climate change is going to be. That's telling us. Yeah, exactly. Which, which is, you sort of say, hang on a second. Um, <laughs> you know, what's going on here? Well, I decided to take a look at what's going on. And I, I have, you know, you said I've spent half, half a century. I've been critique, critiquing neoclassical economics and Marxian economics as well. And in that entire time, I've never written anything as bad, read as anything as bad as I've read the work by Nordhaus, Toll, Mendelssohn, mm. um, it is just they have simply suffered from what I call the neoclassical disease of let's make up an assumption that makes that makes the problem disappear. But isn't also when he talks about using empirical evidence, and, and, and I take your mm. point that uh, you know Club of Rome used a lot of data going going back a, a long way. But I mean that's I mean he'd say well his approach is doing that as well, looking looking at the timeline. But there's a there's a danger with doing that as well, isn't there? Because um, you know because things unexpected happen you have you know with climate you've got tipping points we can't look at it as a, a linear progression so and, and yet i'm sure that's his idea of em- empirical analysis isn't well it? <clears throat> no, we would, a, a foreca- no one forecast the the impact this year of covid19 yeah, uh, yeah and you know uh, well, well we'll get to understand why we're getting more of these diseases and you know perhaps you can start to model them but at the moment it's just a completely un, un, unknown as far oh, as that's right it's un, unknown, un, unknown unknowns if you take the old rumfeld line um but, but yeah. what he's done is tied down to known irrelevancies and this is this is what surprised <laughs> me because we do know no. for example that um florida is hotter than new york and New York is hotter than North Dakota, and that Newport mm. earns more per capita than Florida or North Dakota. So if I drew a relationship between the two, I got like an upside-down parabola. Oh, that'll do. Well, let's just assume exactly the same thing applies with climate change. Right. So he's done that, has he? Um, he's basically looked at the temperatures of cities. He has, he has, he has looked at, simply looked at current relationship between temperature and GDP mm. and said that that's what we're going to right. uh, find from climate well, that change. Well, cra- so, that's crazy, isn't it? So that would be like saying, well, okay, if you, we can look at Sydney where you've got a, a, a temperature which, which averages 27 degrees in January and uh, 18 degrees in, in July as the, as the top. And we can look at London, which is less than 24 degrees is its average maximum so uh, so mm. so london could be three degrees or four degrees warmer and uh, still have the uh, the gdp per capita that, that you're getting in sydney which is you know probably pretty similar places like manchester which are cooler than obviously quite a bit cooler mm. than, than sydney and have a much lower gdp if they got warmer up to the sydney temperature then manchester's mm. gdp would increase as a result and of that's it. exactly the sort of that's the sort of reasoning they made. And <laughs> that's like, nonsense. I mean, it's just. I mean, I, when when I first saw that, I mean, the, you know, my my uh, my partner has no interest in the work that I do, mm. uh, and is Buddhist, and that's that's very useful because she walked into the office 
And I'd read this line uh, written by Richard Toll in an extremely bad paper mm. that has been revised three times, I think it's at least twice, possibly three times for errors, such as having a plus sign where there should be a minus sign in numerical estimates. But in that, he said that, uh, that he, he claimed Mendelssohn, a guy called Mendelssohn was the first person to do this. In fact, it was Nordhaus who first did this. Uh, they simply took temperature and GDP data across the USA and fitted this curve to it, uh, which is a scatter plot that is ridiculous. I'll show you the scatter plot in a moment. Did that and simply said, oh, well, we can fit this with a parabola, roughly speaking. And yeah, warmer places uh, do less well than, uh, than, than, well, cold places do less well than me medium places, and medium places do better than hot places. Right. In America. And we just, and then that's what's going to happen. We, we assume that what happens over space will happen over time. Mm. Now, that sounds like a clever line, and a lot of this stuff is trying to be clever with language. And uh, but but, but, but it's basically is, basing it just on just on GDP versus temperature, based on today, uh, with, yeah. today without any of the historical yeah. factors about how those towns develop. Without, without any what, change what, in the energy retained. Yeah. But well, also, you know, the, why the, those towns develop where they did, what natural resources are around, uh, the settlement patterns, all the history which determines the wealth of a of, of a city. I mean, it's a it's slightly more complicated model than, than just America. I mean, look at, I mean, if you applied it and applied anywhere else, like, uh, you know, in the developing world where you've got very low GDP and high temperatures, that model would be blown out of the water. Well, it, 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 no, the model is not, it's not the fact you compare it with somewhere else on the planet. It's that it's completely irrelevant to what climate change is about. Anyway, and if I yeah. can do a screen share yeah, yeah, here, yeah, do. I'll just show you. For those, you've got to yeah. it for me. So if you're listening to this, as, if you're listening to this as a podcast, then this is why you should be watching on video. Except I understand you might not want to indeed, do that, indeed. given so. how we've, we've described Steve's attire. Yes. Okay. This is the data. This is this is an example of the data. It's not quite the same data he used, but it's pretty close. Mm. And that is what I've got here is the, uh, the the horizontal line here is the deviation of temperatures in the United States by state from the average was 11.5 degrees Celsius. That's 11.5 there, that's 9.5, that's 13.5 degrees. Yep. Up here we have GDP deviations from the average. No. Uh, I think that's about, I'm not quite, I've, got, I've forgotten what the exact average is, but I've got it right. in the data. So I can't see any pattern okay. there whatsoever. I know, but if you, if, you, <laughs> if you fit a parabola to it, you get this, you, this, you can get a vague fit to it here, okay? Right. Now, Isn't the word vague that, that, the, the key word in that? Vague is vague is a very good word. <laughs> now that that not not only is that the curve that they applied to say this is what climate change is going to do. So, for example, if we have a ten degree this 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 model inverted commas messing God God clown faces either side and uh, predicts that if you have a ten degree increase in temperature, you will suffer a thirty a thirty percent fall in GDP. Now, Based on observations of existing temperatures. In existing GDP. In, in, now, if in, we in, raise ju the in just American towns. In just American. So they, they've generalized it to the rest of the world in various ways since then. But this premise means that they're saying if you increase the global temperature by 10 degrees, uh, you would reduce GDP by a mere 30%. Now, 10 degrees is about the, the increase in energy level that occurred during some of the worst extinctions in the history of life on this planet. Mm. Uh, and, and what to actually increase the temperature of the atmosphere alone by by that much, by, by, um, by 10 degrees Celsius. Uh, let's bring up that number on my 
on my uh, paper here, uh, the amount of energy is equivalent to letting off a Hiroshima bomb, bomb every 1.6 square kilometres on the planet. And that's, that, 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 that's, that's not even including warming up the ocean, mm. which is what this is also doing, because the ocean weighs 250 times as much as the, pardon me, stuffing up the screen here, the ocean weighs 250 times as much as the atmosphere. So to, in, to increase both, and they, what, what they're doing is equilibrium modelling. So they're saying 10 degrees is an equilibrium situation. Uh, it's sometime in the far future, once all this energy is being absorbed, or retained from the sun because of the extra carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. To to do that with our own means, to, to add the energy ourselves rather than retain what's coming in from the sun, we'd need to let off a Hiroshima bomb every couple of square metres on the planet. So the problem is, because he's, he's a, you know, retrofitting models, I suspect, but to, to try and argue to, mm. to argue his case, and he's a, he's a Nobel Prize winner, politicians are, are, are going to listen to him. More, more than they're going to listen to you, for example, and more, more to the Absolutely. point, they, they're going to use him uh, as an excuse for for not doing enough. And you, uh, exactly. you do worry about that because you look at, uh, so, for example, the UK's government policy towards uh, climate change, and the, I think the UK is doing more than some countries, like Australia, for example, mm. the, uh, which continues mm. to dig up coal and, uh, you know, has a prime minister who, who's taking coal into parliament and talked about how good it is. The, the UK government has, has five priorities to, to, uh, for, for climate change. One is research. Well, that could just be reading mm. Nordhaus, couldn't it? So that's not a good one. Another, yeah, unfortunately. Another one is yeah. planting trees. That's fine, but how many? <laughs> I'm not quite sure how many would wouldn't be room to move. Uh, I suspect by the time they've planted enough. Uh, mm-hmm. Another is retrofitting houses to make them more energy efficient. So that that's fine. Uh, but I, again, a drop in the ocean, I suspect. Uh, but a, a, a big one is spending 5.2 billion dollars on flood defences. So, it's, so in other words, it's like we're accepting it's happening. So how are we going to um, uh, mitigate against it? Not how are we going to prevent it, but how are we going to protect ourselves from it? It all sounds a bit piecemeal, doesn't it? Of course, in the, the US, they're doing even less, given, you know, you've got a president there who wants to be the dominant supplier of global energy through fracking uh, and, mm. and vowed to turn everything that Barack Obama had done on greenhouse gas emissions to turn it around very, very quickly, uh, he said. Mm. So there's not a lot of hope, is there, that, uh, you know, that, uh, that things are going to change and Nordhaus obviously is going to be the politician's friend on all of this. And that's the trouble because people have accepted these numbers as if they're realistic. And of course, they're also published by the IPCC, the mm. UN government, the body, the, the intergovernmental body that, that uh, tries to re- re- advise about the dangers of climate change. It's dominated by these same neoclassical economists, not Willem, not Nordhaus personally, but people like Richard Toll, who has since resigned because he thought it was too alarmist. Uh, they, in 2014, claimed that the impact of global warming, like again, about a three degree temperature increase, which they thought would take till 2100, uh, that will reduce GDP in 2100 by 2%, between 0.2 and 2%, compared to what it would have been in the complete absence of climate change, which again is such a trivial amount of a decline in the rate of growth of the economy over the next 80 years, that you wouldn't even bother doing anything about it. And the, the foundation for that are the most absurd assumptions where they're making up these numbers. So they assume 
as that's the point about the temperature thing, that increasing global temperature by 10 degrees is a bit like moving uh, North Dakota to New York. Mm, yeah. Um, you oh, know, oh. no big deal. But, but I mean, uh, I mean, on instead, it'll, it'll wipe out most life on the yeah. planet. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's. I mean, but that is the point, isn't it? I mean, if and that's that, that is what is wrong with that model. If you, uh, you know, I gave mm. the example of Manchester before. Uh, you know, if you increase the temperature in Manchester by by two degrees, but you didn't increase everywhere else by two degrees, we might be able to cope mm. with that. It's it's when you're in, adding that two degrees everywhere else, including the places that are already hot. That's when you've got the problem, isn't it? That's right. And like there'll be parts of the planet which we're already seeing now, which have temperatures that have never been recorded before yeah. in the history of our existence on the planet as a species. And if you talk about a 10 degree temperature, then that's something which the planet has had, you know, after it's, it's, it ceased being a, a ball of molten, mm. molten uh, earth. Um, it was, it's, it's had a, you know, two or three brief periods in, several billion years where the temperature's been that high. So the thought we can drive up to that stage and, and capitalism will just basically sneeze and say this is nothing, that's the mental attitude they've got. And they've made up those numbers in, in, in three ways. One is by this crazy idea you can use the current GDP temperature uh, correlations to predict what's going to happen with climate change. The other is they simply assume that anything that occurs indoors won't be affected yeah. by climate change. <laughs> I read that as well. That is crazy, isn't it? So, so we're all going to be fine. Industry's not going to be impacted if that industry is indoors. That's basically what he said. That's saying. right. Now, yeah, he didn't. It didn't quite say indoors. He said carefully controlled environments. Right. And that's and the examples he gave were um, this is Nordhaus's first paper in 1991 were um, chip fabrication and and and, and surgery, um, but he then assumed that all of manufacturing, all of mining, which is hilarious because a lot of it's open cut these days, mm. of course, all of mining, all of services, all of retail, all of wholesale would be unaffected, and therefore 80, he assumed that 87 percent of America's GDP would not be affected by climate change. Now, if you assume that, for Christ's fucking sake, you check your assumption. Yeah. Go and ask a scientist. This is reasonable. The, the, the third thing the, they the, did the, was ignore scientists. Yeah. Well, let's get on to that in a second because mm. I've, got, I've got a question, mm. question on that. You know, yeah. economists versus scientists, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Because they speak different languages. Mm. Their brains are geared differently. Uh, and so how, how are they going to get on and, and reach a conclusion? Mm. But just on the, uh, you know, it's all fine for us all indoors. So we can all go retail shopping. We can go to our Westfield shopping center. That's indoors. But food's grown outside. Wouldn't that be a slightly fundamental problem? That, uh, that, well, that it doesn't seem to occur to people like Richard Toll, who when, 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 uh, when a meteorologist said, are you you're assuming that um, just adding 10 degrees to temperature everywhere tells you what climate change is going to do? He said that's an insanely stupid assumption fundamentally. Mm. And, uh, and somebody said, another one wrote back and said, do you, are you actually saying that we could cope with a 10-degree increase in global temperature? And Toll replied, we'd meet it, move indoors like the Saudis. <laughs> now, where do the Saudis get their food from? Okay, they import it from overseas because it's too damn hot and too damn dry to grow anything in that country. Mm. Um, if the entire planet becomes as hot as Saudi Arabia, right. where do we import it from, Mars? So how is there any credibility uh, whatsoever given to these people? How did Because North nobody's looked at them. Nobody's looked at them in this detail. And this is what horrifies me. It's not just mm. the neoclassicals and the policymakers that I'm critical of. It's actually my own fellow heterodox economists because... And I, I've got guilty of this myself. I haven't looked at their stuff for this length of time. I've been focusing on, you know, Minsky's financial instability hypothesis and stuff like that. And when I said I was going to look at 
Nordhaus in detail, uh, a few of my colleagues wrote to me and said, it's just the discount rate. He applies a really high discount rate uh, so that if you discount the future by 7% per annum and you're going a century in the future, then damages in a century come out as trivial today. Mm. And I, that was my expectation. That's what I thought I'd find. No, they made up numbers that made it look like uh, nothing significant was going to happen in the next century um, and that climate change will have a trivial impact on the economy. Um, and there was many of those three methods by um, this using current, what I think I call cross-sectional data to say they can predict the impact of climate change, ignoring the huge amount of energy that is involved in raising the temperature of the globe, um, by ignoring, by pretending anything that happens indoors won't be affected, and then by asking scientists what they thought and diluting what the scientists said with comments of, uh, of, of such ecological geniuses as Larry Summers. So I'm not a scientist, as you know. Um, mm. In fact, I'm not, you know, d- 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 really that smart. Generally, I just have this ability to, to talk, which somehow manages to allow me to scrape a living. So for someone of, you know, of, of my limited intellect, that model of uh, let's look at existing temperatures, let's take a snapshot and apply GDP mm. and assume that if we move any of those cities up to the to the warmer or colder cities, then the GDP is going to um, is going to change accordingly. I mean, you don't mm. need to be that smart to realize that it's just full of shit, do you? Exactly. It is full of shit. And the reason why they don't react that way is because they have shit methodology. Mm. And this is the that's why I trace it really back to Milton Friedman, because Friedman was the one who said you don't you can't test a theory on the basis of its assumptions. And uh, and, and that argument is what neoclassicals throw at you whenever you try to say these assumptions are crazy. They'll say, oh, you can't test a theory by its assumptions. You simply have to see whether the predictions work out. Well, in this particular case, you don't want to find <laughs> by testing it, oh, dear, the assumption's wrong. Terribly sorry. Oh. You're all extinct. <laughs> oh, damn. But we, we couldn't work it out before we did the experiment of changing the climate of the entire planet. At least we so know you, next time we have a planet. Exactly. I mean, yeah, ne- next time, next time a species evolve, um, we'll be able to- they'll know that this particular assumption doesn't work. So the next species that comes along after humans, yeah. uh, if they read, if they can manage to translate our our um, our uh, cuneiforms, will tell us what to do. So, but this this is Friedman, and that's where it all comes right. from. I mean, and isn't this the you know part mm. of the problem is that the economists and scientists are talking a completely different language. So scientists might say, yeah, one and a half degrees. Uh, you start to get much above that, and then you really start to see an impact in on, on the human race and ecosystems and economists are there trying to put numbers to that and saying oh, it's not all that bad and you can't they can't compromise can they and an economist can't say well look rather than uh, uh, you know we'll, we'll make it slightly worse if, if you'll just uh, uh, if you'll just reduce the temperature uh, increase the temperature at which things start to get bad you, you can't you can't reach a, a compromise it's all or nothing it's all or nothing and we should throw the, throw the economists out I want to share a screen again and show mm. you where this nonsense comes from it's Milton Friedman and this, this is an argument he made to try to get around uh, people criticising neoclassical economics on the basis of its assumptions. And this, this is the argument that, that, um, that uh, mainstream economists swallow when they're at university. They're saying assumptions, you can't judge a theory by the realism of its assumptions. He said important hypotheses will have assumptions that are wildly inaccurate and therefore, the more significant the theory, the more unrealistic the assumptions. Now, that's the line they swallow. 
And what he's basically saying, which which is what they, they think is, is, is realistic, is that um, assumptions that you make a simplifying assumption. Right. So, for example, Galileo assumes, I think it's Galileo, uh, he assumes that there's no air resistance when he drops two lead balls out of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, uh, which were different masses. And he said that's wildly unrealistic to say there's no air mm. in pizza. However, it's not wildly unrealistic to say that air resistance is trivial for two masses of that density that close to the planet. Mm. So you, what is a simplifying assumption leaves out details that if you include them have only a tiny effect on your results. But isn't, isn't an assumption saying that if you move the temperature of one city to uh, the temperature of another city, uh, that city will automatically uh, adopt the GDP of the, uh, of, of the second city? Uh, yeah, well, uh, what, what they're doing, they're, they're not making simplifying assumptions. They're making domain, what somebody else called domain assumptions, a guy called Musgrave, and simplifying assumptions. The, the idea that the assumptions are wildly unrealistic. No, if you make a genuine simplifying assumption it, and you then remove the simplifying assumption, you get a much more complicated result, which is only, ty- only a small way different to what you actually said in the first place. So we take the idea of Galileo dropping two lead balls mm out of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and he assumed effectively air, resi- air resistance could be ignored. Well, if you try to take air resistance into account, um, I think, I'm not sure, but I think the small dense ball would hit the ground faster than the large dense ball. No. So what he said, if you, what he, he said, well, if I drop them out of the tower, they'll both fall at the same rate, whereas the theory that he was contradicting, which is Aristotle, was the heavier thing would fall faster. Right. So it's an irrelevant. So, it's, a, to, so you do it. it's, irre- it's irrelevant. Mm. And if you took it into account, it would actually make his results slightly stronger because I think the weight, the, 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 the air resistance is, is relative to the square of no. to the area of, the, of, of the, the area of the ball, whereas the mass is the volume. Uh, I've got a feeling you'd actually find the small ball fell slightly faster. So, um, so in other words, you can, you can make that assumption and you don't, if you take it out, your results don't change. But, I, but if you make this assumption, yeah. And it's wrong. Your assumptions, your it's results are completely, completely wrong. different. And isn't that part of the problem then? That, you know, how do, how do we know what the irrelevances are? Because it is such a complex science, whereas economists are obviously trying to simplify everything and they might take the, the, the wrong stuff out. And also, the, the, you know, there's a the whole question about tipping points. So if you, if you start to say, well, we're looking mm. for empirical evidence, you're basing it on what's happening in the past rather than what's happening in the future. And economists don't know what they don't know in terms of all of that. We, we, what we do know, for example, is things like the fact that the Arctic Circle reached 38 degrees this uh, the, the mm, last couple mm. of months, the highest ever, and we know that you know the retreat of ice uh, in the Arctic Circle uh, means there's less solar reflection. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm fairly certain that's not in Nordhaus's model. Uh, in fact, you know, you wonder, uh, you know, if you, if you're just looking at economic numbers and you're not looking at uh, the, the scientific models, you're mm. you're comparing apples and oranges, and isn't that the problem? Not just that; it's it's also for outright dishonesty, and this is the, this is the thing which amazes me because. When I, why would he um, do that? Well, I mean, why would he have a, an interest in doing that? Apart from the fact it's one of a prize for the for the shelf. He, he just he just wants to reach a conclusion that the market economy can handle climate change. Mm. All you've got to do is you, 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 you do what they call cover an externality. So there's no price on carbon, uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. You put a price on it. Um, therefore, people are going to who are producing carbon dioxide will produce less, yeah. or they'll find technology that doesn't produce it in the first place, and the market system will solve all the problems. Yeah. That that argument um, mean, 
is something which trivializes the issue. And, but it doesn't work if you find that there are some, like for some points, for example, you lose the Arctic sea ice and then the entire climate of the planet changes. And we have no idea of what that future is, the uncertainties you were talking about earlier come to the fore. So he literally not only ignored what scientists had, he contradicted what they said. And this is the thing which, I mean, I found a lot of garbage in looking through an old house work. This is probably the worst. That's the way he treated work by a university. I think the University of Sussex might be University of Surrey, a climate scientist called Tim Lenton. Mm-hmm. And Lent, have you seen that Lenton and his colleagues, uh, Lenton did an expert survey of climatologists and geologists and so on, yeah. where he said, can we work out uh, whether there are elements in the climate that will tip, so go from one qualitative state to another? Uh, and can we work out the temperatures at which they will occur? And the very first time they did this back in 2008, they concluded they were looking at, they, they limited it to very large features of the Earth, so uh, features that were more than a 1,000 kilometres in length, or you know, um, uh, and ones which would be tipped by what we did this century. And they identified about, I think, about eight. But one of the obvious ones was Arctic sea ice, mm-hmm. Greenland, and uh, West Antarctic, thermohaline solution, the, 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 the Gulf Stream and so on. And in that, they finally concluded that the most critical danger was Arctic sea ice disappearing in the next 10 to 20 years. And I'll just show you that quote again because I just want to start with what was actually yeah. said by the scientists rather than what, what Nordhaus claimed they, claimed they said. Um, so I'll just highlight this and... And and here is here is what Lenton and Co said. I'll just share the screen now. Yeah, the expectation is mounting. Yeah, here we okay. go. We conclude that the greatest and clearest threat is that the Arctic summer sea ice would lost likely to occur long before and potentially contribute to Greenland ice ice shelf melt. Okay, and when you look at their table, the table they put together to talk about this. Um, let's see. I had this. Let's see here. Okay, this is their table from the Lenten survey. Pardon me, taking a while to scroll down to it. Okay, policy relevant future tamping points. Uh, so, Arctic summer sea ice, um, global warming of between 0.5 and 2 degrees Celsius will happen over on, on time scale of decades and will give us amplified warning, warming and so on. And then they say, and that's that's the greatest and clearest threat. Okay, that's there. Yeah. What does Nordhaus do? He shows this table. This is table N1 in his book, The Climate Casino. And he has tipping element, yes, 10 years, correct. Threshold warming, plus 5 to minus 2, correct. Level of most concern, right. only one star. Even Where does that come right. from? Even though, he made it up. Even though it's happening. He made it up <laughs> because... The only time where the critical turns up here mm. in Norton's in Lenton's table, this is when critical values. Now, when you check and see what do they mean by critical values, it says unidentified. Oh, great! He said, "Oh, unidentified, not a problem." Okay. What they meant was they didn't know whether what what temperature between 0.5 and two would actually cause the Arctic sea ice to disappear, but they were sure there was a temperature level that would cause it mm. within that range. Okay, They simply hadn't tied it down accurately. That's the only way that I can say he could have looked at this and dreamt up this idea, as he said, and this is, this is, um, this is, this is now from, from Nordhaus. He says, 
A few systematic surveys, one by Lenton, uh, they reviewed, their review finds no critical tipping elements with a time horizon of less than 300 years until global temperatures have increased by at least three degrees Celsius. In plain English, mm. that can be called a lie. Yeah. Because this thing here, that's the fallacy. Yeah. And when you look at what they themselves said, they did say it was critical. Yeah. And, here, and this, again, is the conclusion of the article. But, I mean, if you talk to the man in the street, they would say the disappearance of Arctic sea ice is almost certainly a concern, wouldn't they? So, so I, wonder, yeah, I, wonder, yeah. I wonder whether Nordhaus is, is going to be found out to be a fraud over time. Uh, the more, I hope the, so. The, the, this the, is fraudulent work. He's, this because is, the, a lot of this just seems, just seems so clearly wrong, doesn't it? And yet, you know, the, yeah. he's obviously. I, I'm going to answer a question. I asked you why would why why would he be doing this? And look, I take in my mind, Steve, you could make a lot more money. I suspect if you were able to consult to governments and tell them what they wanted to hear. Your problem is you you, you give them bad news. They don't. They want to pay to hear that. They want somebody with a a good reputation to uh, to tell them exactly what they want to hear. So that's which is interesting, isn't it? Because you do get a lot of the right wing media saying that there's a lot of people in this climate change game to make money. So people point to the IPCC, for example, and climate change scientists and saying yeah. this is all climate change is a fraud. People are saying it's bad just because they they can make money. Yeah, can make a fortune out of grant money. Yeah, yeah I know it's what but, it's but, a total but, joke. But I mean, it, it actually yeah. does go the other way, doesn't it? Because I'm sure Nordhaus is making money consulting, telling governments what they want to hear. I, but but it's, it's not the money that motivates them. And this is one reason I'm, I'm in debunking economics. I quoted one of my old school teachers um, who we were having a, a class debate, which he let us do without intervention most of the time, about a politician. And we were having – where everybody was criticising and somebody said, at least he's sincere. And the whole class agreed and said, yeah, 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 okay, we're giving it sincere. And the teacher piped up and said, don't overrate sincerity. The most sincere person you'll meet in your life is the maniac chasing you down the road with an axe trying to chop your head off. <laughs> now, that is the situation. They, Nordhaus sincerely believes mm. that climate change will have trivial impact on the capitalist economy. Mm. But because he does believe it, he's likely to get amplified, he's got his views amplified by people who want that to be the story. So all the climate change denial groups, and particularly the born Lomborg types of the world, jump on it. And he gets benefit out of that. Yeah. Um, so they amplify him. He doesn't get a great deal of money out of it. He certainly gets more money than I do. Um, but he, he gets amplified because he's saying what the, what the powers that be wish to hear. So, and, and his work is fundamentally, it's a cost-benefit analysis, isn't it? That, I guess that, yeah, that, you know, right. there's always problems with gay. You look at any cost, it's hard to find a cost-benefit analysis, even for small engineering projects, for example, that, that, that ultimately are shown to have been correct. And, you know, and his conclusion out of all of this is uh, we can go hotter, but for, you know, and it's going to cost us less than the, the, the mitigating action. We won't feel the impact too much. We just need to wear T-shirts and don't go in and stay indoors, basically. Seems look, I'm, 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 I'm doing you're already following, doing already following his example. Right, yeah. There we are. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's lovely going outside and it's 34 degrees every day um, and 37 and 37 in summer. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's insanely unconnected to the physical reality of the planet. And what, what amazes me is how bad the work is. I mean, I thought, mm. I remember when I first started going, I think I thought I'd have to explain, first of all, 
partly why higher discount rates weren't justified. I mentioned that would be a major thing. Yeah. And then to explain why you shouldn't use an equilibrium model, which is what DICE is. It's built on the Ramsey growth model, which presumes equilibrium through time. I thought I was going to be arguing why that was inappropriate and why you had to cover the transition process rather than moving to one, one equilibrium and another. I haven't even got to that stage yet. So Because the assumptions they made up to produce their so-called data were so outrageously and transparently bad. I wonder whether, and we'll wrap this up in a second, but I, I do wonder whether mm. in fact you know we uh, we're not going to move far from from Nordhaus in thinking though because if you just look at the, what we've been through this year where we took a lot of mitigating action to try and prevent the spread of a of a virus that was ravaging the mm. world and now we've got a lot of people saying oh we went too far and the uh, the, the cure is worse than the problem was forgetting mm. the fact mm. that actually well we 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 stopped the problem getting worse uh, and people now saying, you know, that uh, we, we, we should have just, uh, you know, the cost of the economy has been too great, ignoring the fact that mm-hmm. if we hadn't taken that cost, then a lot more people would be dead and therefore the economy would be worse off as a result of that. Uh, mm-hmm. We, we mm-hmm. seem to forget very quickly. And I can see p- people quickly jumping to that same conclusion with uh, yeah. with climate change, that the, the cure is going to be worse than the problem, which is obviously exactly what Nordhaus is saying. Yeah, and the trouble is what I'm saying is that the, the, the people who are saying that claim at the moment are basing themselves on research, which is so bad yeah. mm. that you know, if, if they're aware of how the bad the research is, then they're being duplicitous and mendacious. If they're not aware, they're being conned just as much as the rest of us are by their arguments that it's trivial. Yeah. And I, I really wonder, I, mean, I wonder to what extent people who funded the stuff and who uh, give Nordhaus accolades have actually read what he's written. Mm. Or just because when you read it, you just think this is just crazy. But Steve, he's got he's he's got a Nobel Prize, you know. It's, uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, a- I mean that's one reason to shut the Nobel Prize down. <laughs> All right, I mean there is one other camp of people who uh, you know, aside from whatever uh, Nordhaus is saying, uh, and I suspect you might fit into into this. Rather than the people saying, oh, well, we don't need to do much because the damage isn't going to be too great. There's the other camp that says, well, the damage is going to be great, but it's too late anyway. Yeah, and that's the other. I mean, uh, the question is whether we uh, – what, what I think has, hap- has happened in looking at things like the Human Ecological Footprint Study and a whole range of other studies, we've massively overshot what was sustainable. So we've got to go backwards. Mm. And the people are talking about degrowth. Uh, we, we need a period where we drastically reduce – the load we put on the biosphere. Now, I think we've been pushed so far past that sustainable point that we're likely to see ecological breakdowns coming through and completely overwhelming anything humans try to do in that process. So I see it as being extremely chaotic, but we simply have to try. Yeah, it sounds hard, Steve. It's better just to stay indoors, isn't it, really? Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, uh, and, and wear singlets. All right, very good. Uh, we'll catch you again very soon. Thank you for... Okay. And you got to hear that episode in full, even if you're not a subscriber to the Debunking Economics podcast. Next time, uh, we're back to normal. So to hear the episode in full, you'll need to become a subscriber. Otherwise, we'll give you an eight or ten minute preview. And we're going to be looking at unemployment, the rate at which central banks believe employment gets so low that it starts to cause inflation. The point is, lately, it's been very low, particularly in the United States, and we haven't seen inflation. And now deflation seems to be more of a problem. So does that mean central banks need to change their way of thinking we'll look at that next time on the debunking economics podcast with professor steve keen i'm phil dobby i'll see you then here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.